Let's have a word of prayer. Lord, we are so thankful that you are our Father. Lord, that while we may remain in this world, our citizenship is no longer here. We are citizens of the heavenly realm. And Lord, we are children of the Most High God. Lord, we thank you for the new life that we have in Christ. A a life that Paul tells us is safely hidden with him. There in your very presence. And Lord, we just pray that we would grow to just know and understand uh, with greater clarity just who we are and what we have in Christ. And that that new life would increasingly manifest itself in and through us. Lord, this world needs to see Christ. And Lord, we pray that we might increasingly show forth his life to those who need to meet him. Lord, I thank you for this time now now that we have to continue looking at this chapter dealing with the cross. And Lord, I pray that we might come to understand with great clarity that while the cross was where Christ paid for our sins, it is also the area in which he set us free from the old and made possible something new. Lord, we pray that your spirit would open the eyes of our understanding. Lord, that he would guide me this day and my words. Lord, I don't want to speak anything that's not of you. And so, Lord, we commit this time now to you. For it's in the precious name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Okay, we're continuing on. Oh, got a crowd coming in here. I'll let some of them get situated. And uh, we're going to be continuing on in chapter 12, the chapter uh, dealing with the cross. And uh, we got started on this chapter last week. Um, didn't even get close to getting through it, so we'll be picking up on it this week. Again, I'll do a little bit of a review uh, to refresh the minds of those of us who were here and and maybe to um, uh, kind of uh, get things in line for uh, those who may not have been here uh, last week. Now, in the previous chapter, I'll remind you, we looked at how Believers often try to deal with the old fleshly nature, that uh, Adamic nature that you and I were born with, uh, that, that Adamic nature which is in bondage uh, to sin. And we saw that a significant part of Christian growth is God revealing this to us for what it is. You know, Paul talked about not I, but Christ. Until we see what we are apart from Christ, uh, we are never really going to come to embrace all that we are and have in Christ. We're never really going to search for it. We saw in an earlier chapter, one of the greatest tools God uses in our lives is need. We only take hold of what we see the need of. And, you know... Uh, through much of our early Christian life, our prayers and uh, are towards fixing this. You know, 
Lord, help me, you know, conquer this area of weakness I have. Lord, help me control my temper. Uh, Lord, help me control these thoughts. It's, it's all about basically trying to fix this, this old Adamic nature. And we get frustrated with God because He doesn't seem to help. And as I've pointed out on numerous occasions as we've gone through this study, this old Adamic nature will never change. I've been a Christian 65 years now. Mine has not changed. And I don't think I'm an anomaly. I don't care who you are. Your old Adamic nature, no matter how many years you've been a Christian, will always be the same. And whenever you step off in the flesh, that's what's going to show up. And that's where, for many, you get this concept of backsliding, which is not a biblical concept. You do not find talking about backsliding in the Scripture because who we are in Christ does not go backwards. What appears to be backsliding is that when we step off the ground of who we are in Christ and step back over into just living our life in our own strength, we find nothing has changed and we think we went backwards. No, we went into an unchanged realm. And the answer is to recognize what we did, step back over, and continue to walk on the basis of who we are in Christ. The concept of backsliding is very discouraging. I know we had a, Jonelle was meeting with an Irish woman one day. She was teaching her piano and, and this woman got to talking about this and, and, and she's working her way up the keys and she says, I'm, you know, here I am, I'm growing in the Lord. And all of a sudden I slide back and I'm back here. And it's, wow, you know, I've just lost all this ground. No. Joe said, no. You didn't go backwards. You were growing in your relationship with the Lord and you stepped back over into an unchanged realm. A realm that God is not trying to fix. He's not trying to fix who you were in Adam. He's making you a new creation in Christ. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. All things are become new. Now, very critical to really learning to live free from what we are in Adam and really learning to live in the realm of who we are in Christ is understanding fully the cross. And so we started talking with about that, well, the week before in the end of the previous chapter and then last week. And we saw that, and I'm going to run through a few of these slides to get us up to where we left off. Understanding and appropriating the facts of the cross proves to be one of the most difficult and trying phases for the growing believer. You know, this doesn't, you know, it, it challenges our, our minds at times. And a lot of it is 
that we really, really struggle with the idea that this old life of ours can't be fixed. You know, God says, in the flesh dwells no good thing. And we want to think, that's a bit of exaggeration. Surely there's some good in this. And surely, with a little bit of patching up, you know, this can be made acceptable. The message of the cross is something we struggle with. We struggled with it when it came to our salvation, and we struggle with it when it comes to the Christian life. You know, with salvation, we struggled with the concept of the cross to think that we were so sinful that somebody had to suffer and die for our sins. You know, we wanted to think, yeah, I may not be perfect, but I'm not that bad. And yet God had to convince us we were that bad. And so now we struggle with what the cross means in regards to our Christian life. So it's difficult. So if you struggle some with this, okay. God over time will bring about the understanding you need. It says the believer's understanding of the two aspects of Calvary gives the key to both spiritual growth and life-giving service. Now, what are the two aspects of Calvary? Quickly in review. You know, the one aspect of Calvary is what every believer thinks of when we talk of the cross. That Christ died for our sins. That's, you know, when we talk about the cross of Calvary, that is what immediately comes to mind. And it should. But that's one aspect of the cross. The second aspect of the cross is that Christ took us with him. That we died with him. I have been crucified with Christ. See, Christ went to the cross alone for my sins, but he took me with him in order to deal with me. To deal with the old Adamic nature. And it's that second aspect of the cross that is so often overlooked and misunderstood and not proclaimed. I mean, people, Christians will quote, I've been crucified with Christ. But do they understand what that means? I know... When we were in Wisconsin, I was teaching through this in in Sunday school up there. And I had a woman, she and her husband had served on the mission field for many, many years. And she came up to me one day and she said, for the first time in my life, some of these passages actually make sense. She said, I've known them, I've quoted them, but I've never once understood them. And she said, it's changing everything as I begin to see what on earth these verses mean. So, you know, Calvary is the secret of it all. It's secret of how my sin debt was dealt with. But it's also the secret of how I am dealt with. 
goes on, we saw we shall never know and experience Christ's victory in our lives until we are prepared to count or reckon, count as true, upon His victory on the cross as the secret of our personal victory today. My victory, the only victory I'm going to, let me put it this way, it's not really my victory. The only victory I'm going to experience is sharing in His victory. God is not going to give me my own individual victory. And yet, that's often what we're praying for. Give me victory, Lord. And he's saying, no. I want you to embrace Christ's victory. I want his victory to be seen in your life. We saw the beginning of the life of holiness, a life set apart to God, is a faith in the crucified Savior which sees more than his substitutionary work. It's a faith which sees myself identified with Christ in his death and resurrection. If I want my life to be set apart... And it really isn't my life, it's his life. But if I want his life to be seen in me, I've got to come to that point where I see what who I was being taken with him to the cross and nailed there with him. And I see coming forth from the tomb with him. In his new life. And embracing that life. He says our intelligent faith standing on the facts of Calvary. All the facts. Gives the Holy Spirit freedom to bring that finished work into our daily lives. So he says as our substitute. And this is important. As our substitute he went to the cross alone without us to pay the penalty of our sins. As our representative, he took us with him to the cross. And there in the sight of God, we died together with him. His death was reckoned as our death. It's what frees us from sin. It's what frees us from the old. Now, sin did not die. And my old man did not die. I died with Christ, but my old man is always seen as being crucified. And that's where many, I think, struggle and have problems. That's where you have those who come up with one-naturism. They say, well, the old man's been crucified, he's dead. But then they have to do all sorts of verbal gymnastics to explain why they still struggle with sin. Because they say, well, he's dead. No, he's crucified. We died. We left him hanging on the cross. We went with Christ down into the grave. We came up with Christ in resurrection life. But the old man is seen as crucified. So is the world. The world's not, I don't know if you haven't realized this, the world ain't dead. 
But scripture says it's been crucified to us. So what's the difference? Crucifixion was a place of judgment that leads to death. But if you, if you go back and you read the crucifixion account, Christ was crucified with two thieves, and they're crucified. They're hanging on the cross, but there's a lot of conversation going on. You know, there's the, uh, the thieves at first both mocking Jesus, and then one of them actually turns to Jesus and embraces him. And Christ is speaking. Uh, that's all while they're crucified. And we're to view the old man in that position as being hung on this cross. So why would we listen and let someone hanging on the cross control our lives? Why would we not see that he's been crucified and in a later chapter, and maybe I'll jump ahead sometime and bring that, you know, we wonder why did God leave him? <laughs> why doesn't God just take him out of the, the picture? He is eventually, when we're in God's presence, he'll be dead and gone. He's crucified now, he eventually will be dead and gone, but not yet. And God's accomplishing things. One of the main ones is to teach us to live by faith. As we, as we have to choose to believe that God has set us free and brought us into a whole new realm. So, he went to the cross alone as our substitute. He took us with him, uh, as our representative. We may be forgiven because he died in our stead. We may be delivered because we died with him. Two important concepts. And he says, it's the Holy Spirit who will make these great facts real in our experience as we cooperate with him. My responsibility is to believe what God says. My responsibility is not to produce the Christian life. Again, a lot of Christians read through the New Testament. They see what the Christ life looks like. And in reality, they set out to try to make their old Adamic life look like the new Christ life. And that's where the world accuses us, uh, or accuses believers at times of being hypocrites. A hypocrite, the term hypocrite came from the Greek theater. It was an actor who put on a mask and played a part. And when the old Adamic life tries to look like the Christ life, that's all it is. It's putting on a mask and playing a part. Only the Holy Spirit can produce what's real. And that requires us to take God at His Word. Now that's where we got to last week, and so we just spent about half our time getting back up to where we're at. But I'm, I'm really convinced on the importance of going over these truths and over these truths and over these truths. Paul talks about being transformed by a renewed mind. We don't just hear something one time and it suddenly changes us. We have to hear it over and over and over and over and over. I've had the privilege of teaching through these studies probably at least 30 times. 
And I still appreciate going through it and being reminded and reminded and reminded and reminded. Now, we pick up there um, with the paragraph that starts out through the crucifixion of the old man um, with Christ. The believer has been made dead unto sin. He has been completely freed from sin's power. He's been taken beyond sin's grip. The claim of sin upon him has been nullified. So, you know, again, the old man was crucified. We died with Christ. We are now dead to sin. We no longer have to serve sin. We no longer have to serve our old Adamic nature. They no longer have a legal right to us. We are new creations. We belong to Christ. We were born into God's family. He says, this is the flawless provision of God's grace. But this accomplished fact, and again, it's a fact. If God states it, it is a fact. If God says you died with Christ, you died with Christ. If he says you were raised with Christ, you were raised with Christ. If he says the old man has been crucified, he has been crucified. Our faith is not based on just this airy-fairy kind of wishing things were a certain way. Our faith is based upon facts. He says, let me, this is the flawless provision of God's grace, but this accomplished fact can only become an actual reality in the believer's experience in his everyday life. As faith lays hold upon it and enables him moment by moment, day by day, though temptation assail him, to reckon, count as true, to reckon it true. As he reckons, the Holy Spirit makes real. As he continues to reckon, the Holy Spirit continues to make real. As I count it as true that my old man has been crucified and that I died with Christ and alive to Christ, as I count that as true day by day, moment by moment, the Holy Spirit, little by little, makes it experientially real in my life. I like this quote from Ruth Paxson. Sin need have no more power over the believer than he grants it through unbelief. Sin need have no more power over us than we grant to it by unbelief. And you've heard me say it many times. I'll say it again. We see a lack of faith when Believers time and time again define themselves as nothing more than sinners. I've sat in many a testimony service and, you know, we get up and I say, I'm just a sinner. You came to the cross as just a sinner. You walked away with Christ from the empty tomb as a child of the Most High God. If you're just a sinner, you're going to sin. 
It's very much a defeatist attitude. I don't define myself as a sinner. I recognize the presence of a sin nature within. I recognize what I am capable of, sin-wise. But I define myself on the basis of my relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, I talked about, you know, doing, uh, you know, really looking into the words sinner in the New Testament, how little they appear once you get into Romans and beyond. And after I'd done that study, I was reading a paper in Bibsac, Bibliotheca Sacra, a theological journal, and there's a fellow who, who actually wrote an article, Are We Safe Sinners or Saints That Sin? And that's an important st- distinction. Most Christians see themselves as saved sinners. But in reality, we're saints that still struggle with sin. And that's an important distinction. I'm not praying, God, I'm a sinner. Help me not sin. My prayer is, Lord, I am your child. I'm a citizen of your realm. Open my eyes to all that I am and have in Christ. Teach me to live like a new creation. Teach me to live like a citizen of heaven. Teach me to live like someone who is going to walk the streets of gold in the new Jerusalem one day. Teach me to live out who I am. Big difference between viewing the Christian life in that way and, oh, I'm a sinner, I'm going to do the best I can with a little help from God. Paxton goes on to say, if he, that is the believer, is alive unto sin, it will be due largely to the fact that he has failed to reckon himself dead unto sin. As long as you see that sin and the old nature are your master, it is going to dominate you. If you see that is who I am, but when you begin seeing who you are in Christ, it will begin to move you in a different direction. It says the Reformation brought into focus once again the emphasis on spiritual birth without which there can be no beginning. What is lacking among believers to this day is a proper emphasis on growth. Not just saved in heaven by and by. He says, what sort of salvation would we have if our fathers simply saved us from the penalty of sin and left us on our own to deal with the power of sin in our Christian life and walk? And that's a critical question. That's the question in my own heart years ago that started to put me on the path to really learning some of these truths. Because as I struggled with sin day after day after day after day, I came to the point and I thought, God paid this horrendous price for my salvation. Surely it's got to be better than this. And my prayer became more and more, Lord, show me what you did buy for me. 
show me the salvation you, you gave me. I want to understand it. And he took, started me on a journey to understand it. But they say, but most believers feel that that's about as far as, as he went. And they are, and are struggling to get by, get on the best they can with his help. Most Christians think of the Christian life that, okay, man, God saved me. I'm going to heaven when I die. Hallelujah. But now I just, I just gotta hang in there till heaven. I gotta do my best. I need to, Try my best to, to live a life that pleases God and I pray for His help. And get frustrated because He doesn't help. We feel like we're sinking and He throws us a lead, uh, you know, life preserver. Why? Because. He's trying to bring us to the point where we, alongside Paul, says the good I want to do I can't do. The evil I don't want to do I continually do. Oh, wretched man that I am! Who's going to deliver me? So that we can discover alongside Paul, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Paul had to come to a place of despair before he was willing to embrace God's answer. And we oftentimes have to come to a place of despair before we're willing to embrace his answer. The cross. It's not just that I needed the cross to pay my sin debt. I need the cross to deal with me. To get me out of the way. So that Christ can be formed and seen in my life, in my personality. He says, and this is the Galatian error so prominent even now through born-again circles. We must be brought back to the basics. Freed from the penalty of sin by his finished work. Freed from the power of sin by his finished work. Justified by faith. Galatians 3.24 We walk by faith. 2 Corinthians 5.7 As you therefore received Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk ye in him. Colossians 2.6 Paul in his letter to the Colossians tells us what? We walk the same way we received Christ. By faith in his finished work. He says we are not left to deal with the old life ourselves. It has been dealt with by Christ on the cross. This is the fact which must be known, and upon that fact built the New Testament principle and doctrine of holiness. He says, in other words, Calvary is as much the foundation of sanctification as of justification. Now here's two terms, maybe ought to define. Sanctification has to do with being set apart unto God. Justification has to do with us being declared righteous in God's eyes. 
And justification has to do with how we were brought into God's family, but sanctification has very much to do with Christian life. And both of them rest back on Calvary. He says, both gifts spring from the same work and are two aspects of the same salvation. The same salvation that dealt with my guilt and penalty also deals with me. He says, now, as long as the believer does not know the dual aspect of his salvation, the best he can do is seek to handle his sins via confession. 1 John 1, 9. That is, after the damage is done. says this takes care of the penalty of the product but not the source is it not time that we allow the holy spirit to get at the source and cut off this stream of sin before they are committed is this not infinitely better than the wreckage caused by sin even though confessed When believers get sick and tired of spinning year after year in a spiritual squirrel cage, sinning, confessing, but then sinning again, they'll be ready for God's answer to the source of sin, which is death to self brought forth from the completed work of the cross. Now again, going back just to my own testimony. You know, I said I came to that point of realizing that there was more, had to be more to salvation than what I was experiencing. And it was this squirrel cage that brought me to that. <laughs> because for years, you know, I went through this daily squirrel cage. More like hourly or moment by moment. Uh, squirrel cage. I'd sin and I'd confess it. I'd sin and I'd confess it. And I'd sin and I'd confess it. And I... Uh, I lived in 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 uh, kind of fear that I had sinned and had failed to confess it, uh, and you know it was all this round and round and round and round and round and round and round, and that's what brought me to that point of saying, God, there's got to be more. I'm, no, this is not what you intended my Christian life to be like. And I've found that all that did was kept me focused on sin rather than being focused on the Savior. If you focus on sin, sin is going to dominate your life. If you begin to focus on the Savior, He'll begin to bring you into His realm and His freedom. But to focus on the Savior, we've got to come to grasp what He did with sin and what He did with with our old Adamic nature. We have to understand how He set us free from those. And He's brought us into a realm where our focus can be on Him. Do I still sin? Yes, I sin. Hopefully nowhere near as much as I used to. But 
my focus isn't on not sinning. My focus is on living like a child of the Most High God. And when I sin, I recognize what I did. I acknowledge it to God and I pick up and I walk on with Him. He says, when God's light first shines into our heart, our one cry is for forgiveness, for we realize we've committed sins before Him. But once we've known forgiveness of sins, we make a new discovery, the discovery of sin. You know, that thing we've been in bondage to. And we realize we have the nature of a sinner. We may be a saint in God's eyes now, but we still have the nature of a sinner within us. There is an inward inclination to sin. There is a power within that draws us to sin. And when that power breaks out, we commit sins. We may seek and receive forgiveness, but then we sin again. And the life goes on in a vicious circle, sinning and being forgiven, but then sinning again. We appreciate God's forgiveness. But we want something more than that. We want deliverance. And that's where God brought me to many years ago. I appreciated his forgiveness. But I wanted so much more than that. I wanted his deliverance. We need forgiveness from what we've done. But we need deliverance from who we are. And so, he says, our reckoning on the finished work of our death to sin in Christ at Calvary is God's one way of deliverance. There is no other way because that is the way he did it. You can look for other ways, but they aren't there. This is the way God chose to work. He says, we learned not to add to the finished work in the matter of justification. I know I cannot add to what Christ did as my substitute. I cannot add anything to it. He says, we learned that. Now we must learn not to add to the finished work of emancipation. I can't add to what God has done in order to set me free to live a new life in Christ. We will be freed when we enter His prepared freedom. There is no other. He says, The believer can never overcome the old man, even by power of the new, apart from the death of Christ. And therefore the death of Christ unto sin is indispensable. And unless the cross is made the basis upon which he overcomes the old man, he only drops into another form of morality. In other words, he seeks by self-effort to overcome self. And the struggle is a hopeless one. He says, if you do not come to embrace the cross as what's dealt with this old Adamic nature, all you're doing is self-fighting self. Fighting, self-fighting self is kind of, it ain't going to work. If self wins, self also gets defeated. <laughs> you know, we need the cross. I thank the Lord for the cross. 
yeah, I've got a long ways to go yet. And really learning to live in, in, in that new creation life. But, man, what freedom I experience has come about because of seeing the cross for what it is. And I have no illusions that what I am apart from Christ could ever be made acceptable to God. I know what my flesh is like. And I used to tell my students, I, I have a healthy fear of my flesh. I know where it could take me very easily. It's what keeps me looking to the Lord. And living on the basis of his provision. He says, Marcus Rainford uh, refused to stop short of God's ultimate f- for freedom. And he writes, It is not to be a mere passing impression of the mind when we are undisturbed by active temptation. No mere happy frame of spirit when under temporary refreshing from the presence of the the Lord. No self-flattering consciousness of a heart excised and exercised in good works. From none of these is the believer to infer his practical mastery over sin. So he said, not because we're being successful in avoiding this temptation right now or, you know... (coughs) We're we're involved in all these good works right now. He says, none of these should infer the believer's mastery over sin. But on the ground that Christ died unto sin and liveth unto God, and and, uh, liveth unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then I like what Ian Thomas writes, the closing statement here. I must recognize that the enemy within the camp, the flesh, the old nature, self, I, the old Adam, is a usurper. He no longer really has a right to me. By faith, I must reckon him, count him to be in the place that God put him, crucified with Christ. I must realize that now my life is hid with Christ in God. That He is my life. I hope we all come to the place with the Apostle Paul of being able to say, For me to live is Christ. My life is His. Just real briefly, you know, again... talks about our life being hidden with Christ. And when I taught through this passage in Colossians, I always pointed out that I can see three different things tied in with my life being hidden with Christ. One is the fact that it is hidden is it's not fully seen. If something's hidden, it's not outward, can obviously be seen. The fact that it is Hidden with Christ means though it's hidden in a safe place. Can't be harmed. Uh, you know, can't be taken from me. It's safely hidden. And then thirdly, I always pointed out, if it's hidden in Christ, that's where it will be found. A lot of Christians are looking for life in all the wrong places. 
The world's looking for life in all the wrong places. True life is found in Christ. And the more you come to, to really know Him in, in His fullness, the more you'll, ex- you'll experience that life. You know, as I think I shared before, just to get this point across one time, I went into class early and hit a $10 bill and told the students I'd give it to the first student who could tell me precisely where it was. And they guessed all sorts of things. And one girl finally raised her hand and said, it's precisely where you hit it. And I gave her the $10. I said, that is the right answer. Because where something is hidden is precisely where you will find it. God says, I have a new life for you. And I've hidden it in a safe place. I've hidden it in my very presence. I've hidden it in Christ. One day when He is revealed in all of His glory, that new life will be fully revealed. But until that day arrives, the more we come to focus on Christ and get to know Him, Not just as our substitute, but as our source of everything, the more we will find that life. It's hidden there for us to find. God said, I hid it, but I told you where it is. You aren't going to have to search and try to find where it's hidden. I've told you where it is. So look there. Look in Christ. Okay, we're out of time. Yeah. Can I just make one brief comment? Sure. I can't speak for others, but just for myself, the big battle for me has to do with mysticism. We're taught, we're trained to be logical people, to have evidence, proof, touch it. And when I first heard this, it seemed like an effort to move to a Christian mysticism. And the key, certainly for me, has been that these things, like we're now citizens of heaven, they're not a Christian mysticism where we try to make something real by believing it with our mind. We believe it because it is true. But if that is true, that means that world is now becoming more real than this world. And that is hard for us logically trained, educated, smart people to accept because it's by faith Faith. in the promise of God. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, Paul says, you know, the things that we see and can touch... They aren't the real things. They're passing away. These are the real things. The things that are eternal. The things we may not be able to see with our eyes right now. But we see it by faith in the very statements of God. The most reliable witness there is. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we thank you just for this time. Lord, I thank you for the cross. Lord, what a difference it has made in my life and continues to make in my life. And I pray for each one in this room that they would come to grasp uh, just this truth and that it would transform them little by little into the very image of Christ. Uh, Lord, what a wonderful salvation. 
Lord, I thank you that you didn't just deal with the guilt and penalty. You dealt with us. And you continue to deal with us. Lord, we thank you that you we are your children. And you are a loving Father who relentlessly pursues our best. Even when we would settle for less. We would settle for comfortable. But Lord, you want us to be all we have the potential to be in Christ. In whose precious name we come to you now. Amen.